Money FM 89.3, best of the breakfast huddle. Money FM 89.3, good morning, it's the breakfast huddle. I'm Elliot Danker. 2020, what an interesting year it's been so far. We didn't just have one budget here in Singapore, we've got four now. Unity, resilience, solidarity, and on the 26th of May, fortitude was announced. According to Deputy Prime Minister and Finance Minister Heng Sui Kiet, Singapore may take years to recover from the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic, and we have to work to prevent a COVID generation of workers and students. The fortitude budget is the first tranche of relief measures to fight the COVID-19 outbreak in Singapore, and this budget will cost the government $33 billion. This supplementary budget will provide support for businesses and workers to adapt, transform and seize new opportunities. It also gives additional support for households and the community to cope with the disruptions and seize new opportunities in adversity. In addition, the Fortitude budget provides funding to frontline agencies to boost the clinical management of cases and swapping in testing capabilities. So how will the Fortitude budget help the nation this time around? On the line with us this morning is Ms. Indrani Raja, Minister in the Prime Minister's Office and Second Minister for Finance and Education. Ms. Indrani, good morning. How are you? Hi. Good to see you. Oh, to hear you again. Yes. This is becoming the new norm, speaking over the phone. But it's interesting, you know, with regard to the, the fortitude budget, it's on the back of how the Ministry of Trade and Industry talked about Singapore's gross domestic product. And that's expected to shrink between 4 and 7% this year. So that's down from the previous projected range of, uh, I believe, between 1% and 4%. Is there a possibility that that could go down even further in the next projection? I mean, really, we have to talk about bracing for the worst ever recession, or are we already considered to be in recession? I think the reality is that all around the world, when it comes to these numbers and what will happen ahead, everyone is making best guess because it's unprecedented. So I think that at this stage, it's probably not so meaningful to talk about what we think the actual number will be because you know so many people have tried and it's not necessarily on target. We have to see how it goes out. What we do know is that the global economy is going to a very tough period. We do know that growth rates are going to shrink we do know that GDP will be down. So I think the more important thing is to see, knowing that this is going to happen, how we can actually position ourselves to ride through this storm and see what we can do to come out stronger from this. And there are actually quite a number of strategies. We were starting from a position of relative strength. We set aside a total of $93 billion just for the COVID-related measures alone. But don't forget that we had another $100 billion worth of non-COVID-related ones. So when you add up all the four budgets together, it's about 193 billion, but 93 is is COVID related. And that shows how much we how much effort we're putting in to make sure that the economy stays on track. Then we've got strong partner relationship. We've got our location, our networks, all the other positive things going for us. So I think the key thing to think about is how can we pull all of these together to press on with industry transformation and upskilling our workers to make sure that we get through this storm. Ms. Indrani, I've been questioning you know, how 
can you really keep throwing money at the problem? And really the answer I keep coming to is, well, it does help a lot. You've got 75% of businesses likely to be reopened by July if everything goes well, phase two. But the aviation and tourism sector, yes, we have some green lanes happening, but that's just for business-related travel. Is this sector something the government is paying very attention to? Is there any remote probability that you might have to have a special budget just allocated to this very important sector? I mean, we've provided additional help for sectors which have been more affected by others. So, for example, aerospace, retail, marine, offshore aviation from the the previous budgets, right? So they get JSS, the job support scheme, from between 25% to 50%, or in some cases, 75%. So we're, we're putting some extra effort to help those areas. But the thing about this is that You can't keep, as you say, only pumping in money Mm. and drawing from reserves. We have to see what we can do to position to come out stronger. So upskilling of our workers is critical. And that's why we have launched the SG United Jobs and Skills Package, aiming to create something like about 100,000 job opportunities, uh, out of which there are about 40,000 jobs and 21,000 traineeships and the rest would be courses. And also for the sectors which are affected, uh, like aviation. If you read yesterday's newspapers, I think it was, you can see how SIA is already starting to position itself for safe travel. Yeah. Uh, to see how it can make sure that in, in the market it's the number one carrier when it comes to people who are looking to travel safely. And that, that will be a premium in a post-COVID world. So these are the things that we need to do upskill our workers, innovate to find new business processes uh, and change business models to adapt to the changed environment. Mr. Johnny, recently you talked about how Singapore will have to find ways to rely less on foreign workers and also accelerate automation of some tasks. And this is all in view of this post-COVID-19 or post-pandemic economy. Could you talk about how relying less on foreign workers will help Singapore in the post-pandemic? And how much of a mindset shift do we need to have to embrace this? Right. So the group that we are really speaking about are the migrant workers who do many of the jobs that it is difficult to get local workers to take part in. Mm -hmm. And you can understand why they do very difficult jobs in the construction industry, in the cleaning sector, and so on. So we have two choices, right? Either you have more migrant workers and you continue to keep the numbers, which is is very difficult, or someone or something else has to do it. And if, let's say, you take the cleaning sector, if local workers, if it's not something that local workers wish to do, then you have to see how much of it you can switch over to automation. We've already started to see cleaning robots. I'm not sure whether you in Terminal 4 when, when it opened. They had this cleaning robot that came through. We've got one in uh, the building, actually. Oh, do you? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. okay. So I don't think you will eliminate the human element completely, mm-hmm. but you can reduce a lot of the work that is now manual, which means you need to invest in technology, either in, invest in developing it or invest in buying it, choosing the right technology for your sector. And if we can do that, then I I think we'll be able to reduce the reliance on uh, migrant workers and be more productive as well in this new environment. 
I'll be interested to see automated grass cutters because the grass is <laughs> rather long these days. Um, <laughs> at a virtual signing ceremony to launch an infrastructure capability development program for regional government officials, Ms. Indrani, you mentioned that infrastructure remains a bright spot that can increase business activity and employment. Could you share more on how that will work? Okay, so Asia has a lot of demand for infrastructure. But in the post-COVID era, what has happened or what we've seen and heard from our conversations with other countries is that the nature of the demand is shifting, meaning that there's now a shift more to healthcare infrastructure. Obviously, people want to build more hospitals. There will be a shift to ICT infrastructure because as we have to go digital and online with safe distancing, governments and countries will be wanting to strengthen their IT infrastructure and logistics infrastructure. We've seen, right, with supply chains, Mm -hmm. you know, when when countries started to close their borders and so on, you might have been able to get food from a particular country before, but if they closed, you couldn't get from them, so you have to find a way to get it from another country. So supply chains and all the logistics that go with supply chains, for example, ports, rail, road, airport, all of that comes into play. So there is still demand. And because Singapore is a financial centre that does project finance and financing for infrastructure, that does mean that there will be work for the financial services. And with these new projects that come along, there will be a need for professional services as well. I recently witnessed the signing of an MOU with Myanmar's Ministry of Finance mm-hmm. because they have set up a project bank which highlights the projects that are of national significance. And the MOU basically enables cooperation between us and them where Infrastructure Asia will help to connect them with services or other infrastructure-related uh, players who may be in Singapore that may be able to help them with the development of infrastructure. So there are opportunities. Ms. Indrani, let's change tracks now to the jobs sector, the jobs support scheme. And it was announced in the 42 budget that the Singapore government will extend and enhance the job support scheme. Uh, we've had some time to, to digest everything. But I'm curious, for you, did you get any feedback from the public on how perhaps the scheme could be improved? Were there gaps that were brought to you, your attention? The scheme is intended to be a wage subsidy that helps and encourages employers to keep workers on. So the initial feedback from employers is that it's been very helpful and that it has actually helped them to keep their workers. So that's the first thing and I'm very glad that that has had that outcome. The second thing is that we can see that we've actually refined the scheme as we went along because when we first started out with the unity budget, the ones that got 75% was the ones that were the sectors that were the most badly hit, like aviation, for example. And the other sectors had, shall we say, it was sort of graduated and differentiated, right? They didn't have so much. But then we went into the circuit breaker which basically meant that almost all businesses were down. So it was then 75% for all businesses. Then as we come out of Circuit Breaker, the principle is that for those that have been allowed to reopen, the JSS tapers off. For those that still remain closed, we continue the JSS. And then as everybody starts to come out of it, then you you tail it off so that people can start getting back to normal. Okay, That's that's the thinking of how JSS is, is designed. 
Oh, right, right. That, that does put it in, in perspective. Another thing that's been put in perspective, for the longest time we've been told as a generation, hey, you got to transform. you got to transform for the future, transform for the future. But now you should be transforming already. That's the reality. And one of the key messages in the Fortitude budget, for you, what do you see in terms of challenges that, that companies and individuals might have to face when it comes to transforming? Are we as a society embracing this mentality of transforming enough? I think we are now. No after choice. The circuit, <laughs> after the circuit breaker. Because if you think about it, in the last two months, there was more technology adoption than in the last five years. That's true. And that was simply because people had no choice. So it's one of those situations where you change or be changed, uh, transform or be transformed, you know, willy-nilly. And I I think that previous year's government was saying must do transformation, etc. But there wasn't that sense of real urgency. Uh, Mm -hmm. People knew it was something you had to do and some did it, some not so quickly. But now suddenly everybody has to do it. And realizing that we put in a lot of money in the fortitude budget as well as drawing from the previous budgets to help businesses and workers to transform. And what what does that actually mean? I think the biggest game changer here is the MCI package for digital transformation and innovation. They have the digital resilience bonus to help food services and retail sectors come on board. And then we also want to encourage hawker centers, the wet markets, coffee shops and canteens because You know, you really don't want a situation when people are not going out, then they will order for delivery, right? Yeah. And if our hawker centers and our coffee shops are not on board for that, they will lose out also. So in fact, two weeks ago, I had a Zoom meeting with my hawker chairman. (laughs) (laughs) And yes, I think they were like, huh? Uh, she wants to speak to us on what is this thing. But um, but I think they, they got their children or relatives to, to help them. And it was very nice to see them because for all of them, it was the first time. Wow. And you could see them very cautiously touching the mute and unmute <laughs> button and, and looking at the screen. But the fact is that they were all game to do it. And therefore, in, in my own area, mm. I've spoken to the chairman and asked them to speak to the hawkers to emphasize the importance of doing this. And it helps that the government has set aside money to help them with the adoption of e-payments. And so I think in Singapore the future, you'll be able to order your favorite chikwe and uh, tapao, your favorite chakwetiao online, hopefully. Man, I miss that, actually. I'm also curious about digital resilience bonus because I, I did see a comment that, please correct me if I'm wrong, it also aims to help families who can't afford digital devices? There are few components to the whole digital push. So one part of it is aimed at businesses. There's like pay-ups of up to 5,000 to help businesses digitalize with the pay-now corporate e-invoicing business processes or e-commerce solutions. So for businesses, it's really the payment and all the backroom processes that you want that they should get on board with. Because if you think about it, right, during the circuit breaker, Mm. Those who all had e-solutions could still continue all their their payments, uh, their audits, and all the things that they needed to do that were finance-related. Those that were on manual systems still would have been stuck because you couldn't go back to office. And that is the difference that digitalization makes. So that's for businesses. But we do not want to leave out the seniors. You don't want to leave out lower-income families because the circuit breaker also showed that if they, they were 
isolated or unable to reach others, not being able to apply online for things, then they would be left out. Mm. So digital inclusion is very important. And we also saw how when uh, schools closed, there were some families who needed devices. So MOE loaned out you know, more than 20,000 devices. Mm-hmm. So I think that the key here is teaching them how to... Firstly, they have to be able to get the devices. Mm-hmm. Secondly, there has to be something done with the Wi-Fi because there's no point having a device and you, you don't have either Wi-Fi or the data. And the third, which is really the most important thing, is helping them to use the digital literacy part. Because you you can have the device, you can have the data, but if you don't know how to use it, then you still will be digitally excluded. Right. Digital inclusion. But I, I really got to take my hat off to the seniors because I have seen the evolution of how, you know, things like scanning a QR code for safe entry. I've seen how seniors struggled with it at the start of circuit break. And just yesterday, I saw a bunch of seniors scanning the QR code all ready to <laughs> go into a mall and do their marketing and whatnot. Yes, yeah, so you should never underestimate uh, our seniors, yeah. nor, nor underestimate the human ability to learn. Yeah. Yeah. We we learn right up until, you know, the day we go. So I think, I think definitely we can do this. Yeah, if you push to it, you definitely will succeed. But COVID-19, and this is a point that may be overlooked by a lot of companies, a lot of people, the emotional stress that it's had. Uh, the Singapore government has launched this national care hotline and the idea is to give emotional support to those that need it. Is this an area, in your opinion, you think needs to be paid attention to a little bit more, especially now that we're in phase one, going on to phase two? It's literally readjusting all over again. Absolutely. During the circuit breaker itself, firstly, we had the National Care Hotline and I spoke to some of the volunteers who were manning it. And a lot of times it was just loneliness, Mm -hmm. people who were isolated needing to hear another voice. For schools and for the social service agencies, in extremists, meaning when somebody was really at risk or they sensed there was some real danger, then despite circuit breaker, the exception was made to allow home visits. But I think that going forward, we have to make sure that we're more resilient as a society uh, to help people cope. So on the school side already, uh, there is a whole stream of work. I spoke about this previously to help students with their mental wellness and mental resilience and peer support because it is it is your friend's support actually because Younger people tend to tell other younger people their problems. They don't yeah. always start off telling adults, right? Yeah. So peer support is important. Then for families and you know for adults, being able to create the, the networks for them to, to reach out, which was the thinking behind the National Care Hotline. Because once you call into that, then can be directed accordingly. And we will be looking quite seriously uh, at this on the national level in terms of how we can promote mental wellness. Yeah, there was also a, uh, an increase in family conflict, right? Yes, that is a well-known phenomenon even before circuit breaker. Right. Instances of domestic violence and domestic conflict tend to arise during public holidays and holidays because that is when families are in close proximity to each other. On the days when you know you're going out to work mm-hmm. and less interaction, then for those for the families who are dysfunctional or have problems when they're kept together all the time, the possibility of fights or, or incidences will arise. So in Circuit Breaker, that was sort of like 
weekends plus holidays yeah. plus 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 the catalyst. Uh, yeah. Yes, and it was not just Singapore. That was a global phenomenon. So it's definitely something that has to be looked into. It goes hand in hand with the issue of mental wellness, but yeah. it, it, it's it's not um, a complete overlap because some of it, when you get to domestic violence and so on, they have other root causes, and you really have to go to the root cause. You can't address this superficially. The community and social service agencies was something that was also highlighted. And, you know, there was talk about how these agencies, they need to transform as well. A lot of charity agencies unable to have fundraising activities and whatnot. Was this an area that was overlooked or is something that, you know, you're looking at, you know, as we go into phase two? No, not not overlooked at all. Sure. During the budget speech, I think uh, DPM mentioned the engagement that he, Minister Desmond, Minister Grace Fu and myself had with the social service agencies. Because of the COVID situation and how the economy has been hit, obviously donations have dropped and charities have been affected. So that was one area. And for that, in the Fortitude budget, um, we have the enhanced fundraising program dollar-for-dollar matching Mm -hmm. on eligible donations that were raised between the 1st of April to 31st of March, capped at about $250,000 matching per charity. We put in an additional $100 top-up to strengthen the support for charities, and we also did a top-up for the Invictus Fund. That was a fund that was set up to help social service agencies maintain their services and carry on their operations. So that's one part funding. But the other thing that came out of the conversation with the social service agencies was that they too realized that they had to transform their own processes. So again, uh, before where they might have been doing things, you know, with less technology, less automation, now they realize that uh, there's, there's a lot more that can and should be done. So transformation there too. And the third area is using technology to reach out to their clients. Because in the past, you would ask somebody to come down to the family service center or the social worker will go visit the family. But in a pandemic situation where physical meetings may not be possible, you then have to reach them virtually or digitally. So it goes back to the other point I made earlier about digital inclusion. In other words, even as we have physical networks of support, we need to build virtual networks of support so that we can reach the vulnerable even in a time of pandemic. Okay. I spoke to National Development Minister Lawrence Wong a couple of weeks ago, and he talked about how we are some ways from becoming COVID-free. You need a vaccine for that. But we can have control to make Singapore COVID-safe. Ms. Indrani, I'd like to get your thoughts and, and perhaps your words of encouragement to Singaporeans as we do our best to head into phase two and continue that resilience to, to become a COVID-safe nation. I mean, if you think about it, life must go on. We can't be in lockdown forever. You can't have a circuit breaker that goes on forever. So as we emerge, what we want to do is make sure that we don't have to go back into that situation. And that means conducting everyday life and all aspects of our life safely. Mm-hmm. And with a, a virus, it's a new situation, but a virus is pretty much as old as time itself, right? And the strategies are still the same. It's hygiene. So public hygiene plays a, a, a big part. It's making sure that you keep a distance uh, so that the virus c- reduces the, the risk of transmission. 
and all the other safety measures, cleanliness, etc. So old-fashioned methods in a new scenario, but they work. Yeah, get the basics right and we should be fine. Yeah. We've been speaking with Ms. Indrani Raja, Minister in the Prime Minister's Office and Second Minister for Finance and Education. Ms. Indrani, thank you so much for your time. You take care and stay safe. Yeah. Thank you. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download the SPH Radio app available on Google Play or the App Store.